You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the live stream. I want to say thank you for joining me tonight, and I'm excited to continue our current teaching series. This is part two of what's probably going to be a three-part, possibly four-part series that I've been doing. I've entitled The End of the Story, What Does the Bible Say About the End of the World? And tonight's installment is, uh, I've titled it, When Heaven Comes to Earth, or something like that. I don't know, Bob's, When Heaven Came to Earth. There's we go. So that's the title of this part two. And, you know, I, I recognize that most teachings about the end of the world really focus on trying to nail down when the rapture is going to happen and who the Antichrist is going to be. But I'm tackling this topic a little bit differently than that. And tonight we will uh, be building on what we started last time in continuing to tell the whole overall story of the Bible. Because in order to talk about the end, we kind of need to start at the beginning (laughs) so that we can actually understand how everything connects together and how the end uh, of the story connects to everything that came before it. So we got to have that context. And our focus in this teaching series is really to address the question, what have Christians historically believed are the essentials of the faith when it comes to the end of the world? But this particular installment of the series I'm calling When Heaven Came to Earth, we're really going to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus and why his first coming was actually the beginning of the end times. I think you're going to find it interesting and helpful. So let's begin tonight's discussion with a brief overview of what we covered last time. We started off by saying that this teaching series is basically an outline of the Christian story of reality, the distinctly Christian story of reality, and that that story began in eternity past, the eternal triune God The creator of all things exists in the spirit realm along with the angels and the demons. And we saw some, we talked about some of these things, heaven and hell. These are all things that we find in the spirit realm. And then God created the physical realm. Sometimes we call this the visible world. And this is the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. And we compared and contrasted some of the critical features of the invisible world and the physical visible world uh, last time uh, in part one of this teaching. Now, toward the end of the teaching, we mentioned some ways specifically that sometimes the spirit realm actually enters into the physical realms, things such as angelic appearances, like we see described at Christmas time, supernatural dreams, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming and being born as a baby, um, what we just celebrated just a few weeks ago for Christmas. So we're going to pick up God's big story right there and look at Hebrews chapter 1. 
these very important verses right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews really set the stage for where we're going to pick up the story. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. What they mean by this various ways is dreams, visions, appearances, a burning bush, angels, angel of the Lord, all of these various ways that God spoke to his people. But then I want to draw your attention to these words in verse two. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. We've been calling this the physical realm. Okay, so in these last days, so this ought to get our attention because I know that when we're thinking about a conversation about the end of the world, our tendency is to put everything at the end of the timeline. Again, mark of the beast, seven-year tribulation, all of that. But from God's perspective, the birth of Jesus actually marks the end of something and the beginning of something new. So if we're going to talk about the end of the story, we have to understand that the end really begins with the birth of Jesus. Now, I recognize that that thought is probably new for some of you, so I'm going to try to break that down a bit more. We're going to look in some detail at Luke chapter 4. So if you want to get your Bibles or pull it up in your Bible app, that would be great, and you can follow along as we go through Luke chapter 4. It's a, it's a great place to kind of pick up the story where we left it off last time, right after the birth of Jesus. Right before Jesus launches into his public ministry, he goes out into the desert and he's met by the devil. And so right away here in chapter four, we see the invisible realm crashing in on the physical realm. It says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Well, I would think so. Yes, he would be hungry. And then Jesus is put through some temptations by the devil, similar to what the devil puts Adam and Eve through in the garden. And Jesus is acting as a second Adam. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who created the physical realm, entered into his creation to save his creation from our sin. It really is a remarkable story. Now let's scroll down here to verses 5 to 7. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I, will, I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, I want to call your attention to this particular temptation because Jesus, we, we were told in the book of Hebrews that he is the creator of the universe. 
But here, the creator of the universe enters into this very lowly state, coming into his creation. And he's as he's coming in, the devil comes to him and says, I can give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Well, now think about that a minute. He's offering the creator of the universe, all the, cre- all the kingdoms of the world. Does that make sense to you? Um, that's an interesting temptation. He's probably lying. <laughs> he's, he's giving him some kind of messianic shortcut, it would appear. You know, that God has a plan. The Father has a plan for the Son, and we're going to see that plan unfold. And that plan is not only that Jesus would be the creator of the universe, but he would show himself to be the ultimate king of the universe. And that that plan would be revealed through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that plan would reveal Jesus as not just a king, but the king of kings. But here Satan offers this shortcut. The devil offers him a shortcut. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I think it's a debatable point whether or not the devil actually had that authority or whether that's a lie. But in some way, that he's, a, he's giving him a temptation related to kingship. Now let's scroll down to verse uh, 14 here, a little bit more. Right in the near context, right after he comes out of the desert, out of the temptations, it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and now he's full of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes back into Galilee. News spreads about him through the whole countryside, and he's teaching in the Jewish synagogues, and everyone's listening and praising him. And then we see in verse 16, he went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into that synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This is what we call Isaiah chapter 61, when it was handed to him. It was likely just that that turn in the rotation that week for that scripture passage to be read. And Jesus reads it. And he he unrolls it, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery for sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so this was known to be a a messianic passage. And Jesus is basically making a proclamation in his hometown saying, I'm that king. I'm the the person that God had promised way back in the Garden of Eden, the one that would come to crush the head of the serpent, the one that would come and rule and reign from David's throne I am that one. I have now come. Now, again, we're still in Luke chapter four. We're staying right in the near context. Let's scroll down to verses, uh, starting at verse 31. So after he, he ministers some in Nazareth, he goes down to Capernaum, which is also in Galilee, 
Galilee's up in the northern region. And on the Sabbath, he, he taught people. They were amazed at his teachings because his words had authority. And what this is drawing our attention to as a reader, it would be understood that, that rabbis would be teaching, but they didn't teach with their own authority. They always taught under the authority of another rabbi. But Jesus had this way of teaching where it almost like, He's talking almost like he's God. Like he 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 speaks with such authority. He doesn't cite other rabbis of where he got these ideas. And so when he meets someone in the synagogue here, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, "Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring them. Him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words are these? And notice these, these two words here. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. So notice, authority and power. What was the power that directed Jesus? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, especially in verse in uh, verse one and verse five. But he also speaks with authority. He doesn't speak under the authority of another rabbi. He's almost like this self-authenticating authority, and he speaks with such power and authority that demons obey him. Like the, I mean, their minds are being blown as to what's happening here. Jesus left the synagogue then, and he goes to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering with a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her, and notice what he does here. He rebukes the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to serve them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hand on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of people shouting, you are the son of God. And he rebuked them, would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. So Jesus, I want you to understand the scene here. He, he goes to the temptations. He gets tempted to take a shortcut to becoming a king. He says no to that temptation. He goes into the synagogue. He proclaims, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that God promised would come crush the devil. And then what does he immediately do? He goes out and casts out demons. He starts crushing the devil. Then he, he starts crushing sickness, another um, aspect of the devil's work. And then we see more people come and get healed. More people get demons cast out of them. And now we're going to scroll down toward the end of the chapter. In verse 43, it says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So when we talk about the gospel, the gospel literally translated is the good news. So what is this good news that Jesus is talking about? It is the, the good news that the kingdom of God has come. And, and so Jesus's ministry is, it, it, it is about sin and forgiveness and, and the cross and the resurrection. It is about those things. 
But it's also more than that. It's a proclamation of his kingship. It's a proclamation of the power and authority that Jesus is bringing. And how do you notice how the spirit realm is breaking into the physical realm all over the place in this passage? Um, I think that sometimes Christians in the West miss the importance of what's happening here because, again, this good news, what is this good news of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching? It is not merely getting saved from your sins. Again, that's part of it, but it's also more than that. Okay? And I really want to emphasize this point because the good news or what we have come to call the gospel is that the Messiah has come, the King has come, the one that God promised would crush the head of the serpent has come. He was the one that God promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When the first humans fell into sin, God didn't turn his back on them. Even though a holy God could not have intimate fellowship with sinful humans, he promised that he would send someone to conquer the devil. And the world had been waiting for that someone. And, and God chose the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, to be his special people through whom that king, that Messiah, that promised one would come. And when Jesus was finally born, he came to save humans from their sin but he also came for more than that. This Messiah came to demonstrate that he had power and authority over sickness and demons. And if we were to keep reading through Luke's gospel, we'd see that Jesus also had power and authority over death and even the devil himself. He, he came to bring the kingdom of God and I want you to think of this as like a preview of what life would be like in the new creation. It's kind of like watching a movie trailer. You see Jesus traveling and proclaiming the gospel, but also demonstrating the gospel, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. And, and uh, as the reader, we're supposed to read these things and think, yes, that's how it's supposed to be. It makes us look forward to what we see described in Revelation chapter 21, where it describes the new heavens and the new earth coming down. It says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the, notice the words here, old order of things has passed away. With Jesus comes the beginning of the new order and so when we see him healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons, it's supposed to point our focus forward as a preview of coming attractions that one day there will be no more sickness or mourning or crying 
or pain or death. And in fact, there will be a restoration of that close fellowship that we saw in the garden, only even closer um, because it'll be in the spirit realm. And the things that the temple pointed forward to as types or shadows of that fellowship restored will be permanently restored in the new creation. And so, you know, I know it's fashionable right now to say that Jesus came, you know, the whole reason he came was to overthrow human power structures. That's not what Jesus was doing. And that becomes even more clear when we flip to the end of Luke's gospel. Let's look at chapter 24 and kind of the end of, of that story. It says, this is after the resurrection, on, on the resurrection day. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my feet. It is I myself touch and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law, the prophets and the Psalms. So when we look back at the Old Testament, everything points us forward to Jesus. Everything points us forward to that hope of that Messiah, hope of that King who would crush the head of the serpent. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Oh, that's the prayer of our heart, isn't it? That Jesus would open each and every one of our minds that we would understand the scriptures the way he intended them to be understood. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And notice this, verse 47, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send to you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So notice, now where is this Holy Spirit power? Because Jesus has risen from the dead, now that Holy Spirit power is going to be passed on to his disciples so that they will walk in that same power. And notice the call. The call is to repentance, forgiveness of sins, and preaching in the name of Jesus to all the nations. Jesus doesn't come just to overturn power structures. He's calling sinners to repentance. He's he's making a new people in which the Holy Spirit will dwell. All sinners are invited, poor sinners, rich sinners. All sinners everywhere are invited to come into the kingdom of God. The woman at the well, the Roman centurion, Nicodemus the Pharisee, and Zacchaeus the tax collector were all invited to come and be a part of God's new kingdom, his new people. Now, not everybody accepts this invitation. But everyone is invited to the kingdom of God. Now, if we were to turn the page and we look at the first chapter of Acts, and the book of Acts is also written by Luke, same author. This is 
like Luke, the sequel, okay, is what the book of Acts is. We're going to see a repeat of this end of the book of Luke, only it includes one important additional detail. Jesus' disciples still thought Jesus was going to bring that earthly kingdom. They thought he was now going to overthrow the oppressive power structures of Rome. But nope, that was not God's plan. It says in Acts chapter 1, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. This is a restatement of what we saw at the end of the book of Luke. But wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This same power that lived in Jesus that, that, that animated his ministry and enabled his miracles is now going to come live in you. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still wondering, where is the earthly kingdom that we thought was coming? He said, it is not for you to know the dates or the times the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive, notice this word, power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. That's a repeat of what we saw at the end of the book of Luke. So why were they expecting the kingdom? Because that's how they had been taught. In fact, here's a little diagram of the Jewish view of God's big story. This is what they were expecting, that the old age, the age that they had been living in, when Messiah comes, he will come from David's throne. He will set up this earthly kingdom. In their case, he'll kick out the oppressive Romans and usher in the new age. This was the picture in their mind of how they understood what the kingdom would be, what Messiah's reign would be. But as you and I know, the, un the events unfolded a little differently than that. With Jesus comes new revelation. And that's one of the reasons why it is so important to establish that Jesus is God, the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And with Jesus comes more details. He starts to fill in a bigger a more complete picture of God's story. With Jesus, we discover that the end of the world looks more like this. This age, and then remember back to Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, Jesus has come. And so that age to come was ushered in, in particularly in the first coming of Christ, and especially culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. That new age starts coming in with Jesus. But here's the unexpected part, okay, is we're going to fill in kind of the middle here. I'm going to shade this area in of where we are currently living. We are living in this, this tension, this area that theologians called the now and the not yet. This is the era that we are living in. Jesus' first coming has inaugurated something new. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. It is being proclaimed to the nations. And it's not all the way realized yet. The invisible world 
has broken into the visible world with the coming of Jesus, but it is not yet completely revealed. Okay? So we, we don't yet live in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, but we do have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us if you are a Christian. Okay? And so the now and the not yet. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. It offers a nice summary of what Jesus' ministry accomplished in his first coming. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one captures you by hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on the human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. So, you know, the devil's going to come along and, and try to give an alternative story, an alternative narrative. Make sure you don't get deceived by that. Okay, let's continue. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over, here's these words again, pow, over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In other words, your salvation is supernatural. It's not merely a physical salvation. It has a spiritual component. It, it is reflecting of the spirit realm. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised with Christ. So here, Paul is comparing salvation and circumcision. Salvation of the new covenant with circumcision of the old covenant. Having been buried with him in baptism, now he's switching metaphors. He's, he's, he's talking now about baptism. And that when you're buried, we go down with Christ. We are being buried analogously to our old life, our old self. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So comparing that down with Christ on the old man, up with Christ in the new man. This is the good news that something new has already broken in. So every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus, every time they get baptized and their hearts have been circumcised, it is them beginning to live in the not yet. The kingdom of God has come near. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having, notice these words again, disarmed the powers and authorities. So he comes with power and authority and he disarms the devil and his power and authority. He has made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So he puts on a, a shame parade. He puts the devil on parade and says, you have been defeated. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent. 
And that has now happened. The good news, what is the gospel? Is that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil and brought the kingdom of God near. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God and all authority in heaven on an earth in the visible realm, the invisible realm have been given to him. Let's read Matthew 28, 19. Therefore go to make disciples of what? All nations. There's that word again, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you teaching them. Who's the them? It's all the nations. So we're baptizing them. We're, we're getting them into the kingdom. And then we're teaching them how to live, teaching them to obey God's commands. I am with you always. I wish I had included verse 18 there because it says, all authority under heaven has been given to me. Now, therefore, go. That's the verse that's missing there. And so Jesus has all authority that has been given to him. And now we go in that authority. Thank you, Bob. Um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. So the implication is Jesus has all authority. Now he's deputizing us with power and authority in the Holy Spirit so that we may now go and, and be his spokespeople proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. So now we live in this reality of the now and the not yet. Jesus is bringing, he, he, he is reigning, he is ruling and reigning, and he is bringing all things under his reign. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's the first resurrected. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Jesus is like the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You and I, if we are in Christ, if we know Christ, if we are in that covenant relationship, then we too will rise just like Jesus. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father. So it's just amazing. Like all things have, all, Jesus has been given all authority to rule and to reign. And then as he's putting everything under his feet, then he's going to eventually hand the kingdom back over to the father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. And when now, when it says that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to, to him, the father who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. So this is God's big plan. Is it to secure our salvation? Yes. Is it to secure forgiveness of sins? Yes. But it is more than that. It is to see Jesus establishing his rule and his reign and bringing all things under his feet. So right now we live in the world of the now and the not yet. Jesus is reigning. All things have been put under his feet. 
Jesus has made a new people from among the nations. We are, if you are a Christian, if you are a true born again Christian, we are supernaturally connected in the spirit realm as we live out manifestly in the physical realm. That's what it means to be the church. That's the most basic definition of the church. The church is not a place. The church is a people. And if you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. The same spirit that, that was with Jesus in his ministry now lives with you. These things are real. And in, in some very real ways, the invisible world resides in the visible world right now in you. Mind blowing. Okay. So, and yet, so, so that's the, 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 the now part. That's a reality. And yet people die. People are harassed by demons. Sickness happens. So we're not yet seeing the fullness of Jesus's kingdom. We wait and we long for the invisible realm to be made fully visible at Jesus's second coming. That's the not yet part. So let me go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and and jump to the end uh, of the chapter there. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed perhaps of wheat or something else. Paul's using an analogy here. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh are the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another. Fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. In other words, the spirit realm, there's the physical realm. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, Splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, stars another. Stars differ from, from star and splendor. So it will be in the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's in the physical world. We're going to die. We're going to get thrown in the ground. But it is raised imperishable. It is raised to reside in the spirit realm, never to die again. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised to a spiritual body. So I want you to notice visible world, invisible world. These are the very contrasts that Paul is bringing up here. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who is Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. He's talking about from a human point of view. The first man was from the dust of the earth. He was physical. The second man, Jesus, was from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we 
bear the image of the heavenly man. So as we grow in Christ, we will become more and more like Christ. We will become more and more like our heavenly self. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, not everybody's going to die, but we will all be changed. We will all receive our glorified bodies in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable never to die again, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with the, with the mortal with the immortal. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, we know the end of the story. We know that we will one day rise again to an imperishable state. I want you to notice throughout Paul's extended discussion here about the end of the world. It involves the coming together of the visible world with the invisible world. So what we live in now and what we saw in the ministry of Jesus is again, that movie preview. It's a preview of coming attractions. It gives us a points the way forward of where we are going into the new heavens and the new earth. Now that we kind of have, this basic already not yet framework in place. And hopefully that's making sense to you because this is so vital. If we're going to talk about the end of the story, we have to understand that the, the end really started with the coming of Jesus. So I want us now to look at two potential errors that I often see with regard to understanding this appearance of the kingdom of God. As we've said before, the big picture of the Bible is about establishing the rule and the reign of Jesus. Jesus is the creator, he's the savior, and he's the king over everything. So when we come into God's family, we are becoming part of something that is far, far bigger than just our personal salvation. We are becoming part of God's big plan to bring the reality of God's reign to earth. And so that's why when we pray in the Lord's prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. So that is very fine and, and, and an appropriate thing to pray as Jesus taught us. But there's two errors that can come in when, when we think about this. And, and I see both of these errors kind of play out in different streams of Protestantism in especially American Protestantism, Protestantism, and then we have a tendency to export that to other countries. So the first error that I see is that some Christians have what I call an under-realized eschatology. So 
this is kind of an attempt at looking at what I mean by an under-realized eschatology. So they would say, we live in this age that the, the, the age to come hasn't happened yet. The age to come doesn't start until the second coming. Perusia is a fancy $5 word in, among theologians for the second coming of Jesus. So in this view of the under-realized eschatology, there's a tendency for these Christians to have little to no expectation of change in this creation. Everything, all of the change they look forward to is in the new creation. We're waiting for the second coming. And um, when I was growing up, this is kind of the view that, that I was taught in, in growing up in the 1970s, grew up in a more traditional dispensational church. And I often heard people say something like um, that the devil was ruling this world. After all, just look at all the evil the humans inflict on each other. The world seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And Jesus is coming. Looks like it's just around the corner. And in this view, I believed, I picked up on, I sensed that Jesus wasn't going to rule until his second coming. So my expectation was that the world would get worse and worse and worse. And it was sort of the expectation of pessimism. And I think that that attitude and that belief represents an example of what I'm calling this underrealized view of eschatology. Now, let me give a second example of this underrealized eschatology of, and how it can kind of impact us as individuals. Um, when I was reformed, although our church technically had a more robust view of the reign of Jesus happening right now. They were all millennialists, which basically is a $5 word for saying Jesus is currently ruling and reigning on some level. Um, the pastors, the way they would shepherd the people was from a posture of basic pessimism um, for personal holiness. There was a fairly low expectation for improvement over besetting sins. We were taught week after week that we were nothing more than forgiven sinners, that there was no difference really between me as a Christian and the random pagan I might run into in the grocery store other than I was forgiven and the pagan was not. But there was really not much else different about me than that. I was just a justified sinner. That's the, the, the words that would be told to us all the time. And I think that that is an example of underrealized eschatology in, in your personal life. It, it promotes this sort of pessimistic view of sanctification, of growth in the Christian life, truncating meaningful expectation of progress or freedom from particular sins. It's, it's kind of not even really in the, the equation. It's not in the culture. Um, I can expect forgiveness. I can expect grace. But I can't expect true progress or, or meaningful transformation from besetting sins. 
Um, and I just don't think that that's a completely consistent picture with what we're taught in the New Testament. We're told time and time and time again that as a Christian, the old, our old ways, not only are we living in the now and the not yet, but even our old desires and our old ways should fade away over, over time because Holy Spirit's living in me. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, um, Paul's talking about lawsuits and that sort of thing. And then in verse 9, he says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you have these kinds of besetting sins as lifestyles, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's some expectation that Paul seems to have here that these sins that, that marked the pattern of your lifestyle and your behavior before you're a Christian, those things shouldn't be marking your, your, your behavior as, as an everyday occurrence, as a desire anymore. Something should be changed. You were washed. You were sanctified. To be sanctified is to be set apart. It's to be transformed. Galatians chapter 5, Paul puts it this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then that you not to let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. In other words, you are free. <laughs> Live as a free person. Don't bind yourself again to past sin. Now we're going to scroll down a little further in the chapter here. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, your sinful desires. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Notice, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and it changes your desires. You don't have to live by those desires anymore. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit is what is contrary to the flesh. If your desires are exactly the same before or after your conversion, you might have to kind of check in to see if you are a real convert. Um, they should be in conflict with each other. Um, you, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, you're not living um, according to the law, not the law of God, but under the law of your, your sinful humanity. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, Debauchery is another word for drunkenness and kind of partying, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is a certain expectation of change um, and that the Christian should have the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if there is no meaningful change in your life, 
this underrealized eschatology, you need to, to check in and make sure that you are a real Christian. There should be a level of expectation of overcoming sins and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, will we be perfect at that? No. Will we live a sinless, perfectionistic life? No. That's the other side of the ditch. <laughs> That's the overrealized eschatology. That's the second error, that, that we will live completely pure without sin. But we should be making meaningful progress in overcoming our sin. Living in the now of the power of the Holy Spirit, and the not yet of knowing that I still live in the world, I still have some struggles, but I'm improving. I can look back in my life and say the sins that beset me five years ago, I am making meaningful progress on those. The other side of the error, as I mentioned, is over-realized, over-realized eschatology. This is the mistake of expecting all the change in the here and now. This is the error of um, sinless perfectionism that was common about 200 years ago. This is also, I think, an error that I see a lot in neo-charismatic streams of Christianity. And this is the error of thinking that all sickness, death, and demons can be conquered in the here and now. Over-realized eschatology is, I think, what led to the very sad situation a few years ago of where there was like this worldwide campaign to try to raise a four-year-old child from the dead at Bethel Church. Now, I want to be clear, we, we live in the now and the not yet. And so we do see uh, that Jesus raised some people from the dead. Did he raise everybody from the dead? No, but he will on the last day. That there are far, far too many stories of Christians who do rise from the dead, especially in Africa and Asia, to deny that that still happens. It happens. People come back from the dead. Christians raise the dead. I had a guy in my living room a few years ago who had a copy of his death certificate in his wallet because he was raised from the dead. So I live in that tension of the now and the not yet. I don't think everyone will be raised from the dead until the last day. But I do have some level of expectation that Jesus will heal some sick people. He will get people set free from demons. I have been healed of a major disease. My best friend was healed a few years ago from multiple food allergies. I prayed for a pastor at my former church. She was healed from celiac disease. So I have seen medically verified miracles, and I pray for those. But I don't want to fall into the error of over-realized eschatology, believing that all sickness, all disease, all demons, and all death will be resolved in this life. Why? Because we live in the now and the not yet. We live in that tension. So we don't want to fall in the ditch on the one side of the under-realized eschatology, where I have no expectation of miracles and I have no expectation of meaningful progress in the, in the Christian life. I don't want to fall in the other side of the ditch 
where I think everything can, I can be pursuing sinless perfectionism and pursuing all resurrections in the here and now, all healings in the here and now, and that sort of a thing. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. You know, I've prayed for people who have gotten healed and I've prayed for people that didn't. I, um, and, and why is that? I resolve that tension by saying, yes, that makes sense. We live in the now and the not yet. We don't live in the new creation. This is the great tension of this stage of God's big story. So we embrace the reality that we are no longer who we used to be. Something new has happened. We should be making meaningful progress toward conquering our besetting sins. And we embrace the reality that we are not yet fully what we will be. My body will still decay. I will still likely struggle with sickness. And someday, if Jesus doesn't return, I will die. (laughs) But I can also see and hope for, and in some cases, have, have seen with my own eyes, very real miracles. So as we wrap this all up, I want to invite you to reflect on the reality of where we are in God's story. God has come. The creator has entered his creation. And he has enacted a plan to overcome the curse of living in a Genesis 3 world and get us to a Revelation 21 world of the new heavens and the new earth. I want to encourage you tonight with the good news that the gospel the, of the, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom has come. Even though our first parents, Adam and Eve, plunged humanity into sin by rebelling against God, the creator did not abandon his creation. He is working out a plan to make things right again. And this is the great hope for everyone. No matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, you can repent of your sins today. You can turn away from your rebellion against God today and become part of God's big story, his big family, as he moves his people into the new creation. The good news is that the Messiah has come to rule and he is ruling. He's the king of kings and he is gathering for himself people from every nation on the planet. The whole world already belongs to Jesus. He created it. His death, burial, and resurrection proves that he is God. He has crushed the head of the serpent the devil, he has conquered death, and he is reigning. Right now, we are living in the now and the not yet. We are living between D-Day and V-E Day. You know what D-Day is? D-Day was the day the Allied forces entered France and began to push back the Germans toward the end of the World War II. It was the beginning of the end of the war. It's called D-Day. The war wasn't fully won yet against Hitler until VE Day, which was Victory in Europe Day. But it was the beginning of the end of the war. Hitler knew at that point he was going to lose. He knew it was only a matter of time until those Allied troops ran through Berlin. That's where we are. Jesus has come. 
The beginning of the end has started. The devil knows he's defeated. He's biding his time, trying to kill off as many people, take as many people as he can down with him, just like Hitler did at the end of what happened in Germany. That's where we are. That is the great tension of the now and the not yet. Victory has been secured. And now we are pushing forward into the new creation. All right, I'm going to put a bookmark right there so we can come back for the third uh, installment. Next time, we're going to um, really start to get into what does the Bible say about specific events? What are the things that Christians have historically believed about these issues? Okay, I hope you're finding the teaching helpful. Please share it with a friend um, and especially, you know, somebody in leadership that you might think they would benefit from this teaching series. That would be awesome. Share it with your teenager. um, Have a good discussion. Share it with your small group and just keep those discussions going out there. All right, my friends, I hope you stay well and God bless you. Good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.